Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Chairman Sidhu the Chief Legal Officer and Company Secretary at Zero. It's a marvellous discussion. Chairman takes us through her career. The early parts was a very traditional career with law firms, Kirkman and Ellis and Allens in Australia, and then why she made the move to in-house and what really resonated with her. You'll, you'll hear her talk about being aligned with the mission and the vision of the company she's working for. So by the time you'll hear this, Chairman will be on a well-deserved career break, traveling around Western Australia with her family, thinking about what's next for her. So it's a wonderful discussion. I know you're gonna enjoy it. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Chairman Sidhu, welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm so looking forward to the discussion that we're about to have. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Looking forward to it too. Now, Chairman, you're currently the Chief Legal Officer and Company Secretary of Zero, and you've had that position for the last five years or so, but you weren't always the CLO at zero, yet you had a life before that. I want you to take me back to the early days, right back to why did you get interested in law in the first place? And then some of the early kind of career milestones, perhaps, that really started shaping the direction of your career. So take me right back. Oh, all the way back. That's, all the way uh, back. That's into a slightly dim and, <laughs> dim and distant past. Yep, yep. It seems really funny to say this, but I was actually a rebel in my family for doing law because I come from an Indian background, families coming out of Southeast Asia. So as you can imagine, there's lots of expectations to do medicine, <laughs> lots of, you know, doctors, engineers, people in, in STEM, essentially, in my family. Yep. So yep. it's hilarious when you say you were a rebel because you went and did law, but actually um, 30 and, plus and, years And ago. let me tell you, your story is a really common one. How many times I've actually heard this, and not on this podcast too, that doing... Being the lawyer or the first lawyer in a kind of a STEM type background family was just a disappointment. So, so you're not alone. So that was me. I'm not alone, but that was me. And, and, you know, because people laugh when you say you were a rebel doing that because it's not exactly a rebellious type of profession, yeah. is it? Yeah. So those are the origins. I was interested in, I was interested in um, a profession and... You know, like a lot of people, being being really enjoying words, really enjoying language, that's not necessarily a good reason to go into the law, yeah. as many people find out. I think a lot of yeah. people then find out that it's actually very, you know, it has a lot of synergies with actually STEM and logical thinking. Yeah. But luckily for me, that's I can do both. And so for me, it's worked out well. For others that go into the law for that reason, it doesn't necessarily yeah. work out that well. But for me, it ended up actually being this really perfect fit of um, language and logic, and later on in my career, business and leadership as well. 
And so I can see from the early part of your career, quite traditional in the sense that you've had you know, law firm experience. I think you, uh, you had a, a year with Kirkland Ellis. I assume that was in the US. That was. That yes. was, and, and then you had a couple of years at Allen's, of course, a well-known Australian firm. Tell me about that phase of your career, the key, when you think back now, the learnings, what kind mm-hmm. of stands out for you in those early years? Yeah, you know, it was a traditional, it was a traditional start, actually. So I did all the things that one did back then, including actually even before that, and this was a quite a pivotal moment in my career, I worked for a judge in the Supreme Court in Queensland. That was at a time where, you know, it was a very standard thing. If you wanted to then go and study overseas and do your master's as an Australian, a lot of people would go to um, the UK and go to Cambridge or Oxford. And um, this judge, I'm forever grateful to him, Justice Byrne, encouraged me to think about the States because I was really interested in intellectual property law and he'd studied there. And when I looked into the um, the master's courses that were then available in the in the US um, academic institutions and universities, there was a lot more that was relevant to intellectual property. And I decided to actually apply to US universities and ending up ended up getting a um, a global student scholarship to go to New York University and ended up in New York. And that really, I think that sort of changed. It was really influential in my learning life and personal life and my career because then that actually went on having that US experience went on to sort of provide a different context as well but also it was just awesome fun to um, study live and then work for a year in New York in the late 90s and what a what a great experience. I mean, I, my personal one was something similar but in, in London so I did the more traditional yeah. path and doing the masters um, uh, uh, at the University of London, attached to Queen Mary in Westfield. So I had that year abroad, had a bit of experience working for, and then which was fantastic. It took me a while to get to New York, only a couple of years ago, but I'm here now, much longer than it took you um, to live a life here, um, uh, Charman. But um, what, what, what was the influence? So you had Justice Byrne who influenced you in that. When you look back on that, um, and the kind of experience that you got from being a judge's associate, coming to the US, what, what's, the, what's the context that it provided you for your future stages that you think you otherwise wouldn't yeah. have had? Is it just a broader global perspective? Is it a bit of multiculturalism? What is it, the place that, that you would then now say to someone perhaps thinking about the same thing? But what does it actually deliver for you longer term? Oh, so many things. I think when you're at that stage in your life and your career you're really learning about yourself and you're learning about the world so the year in that in the court system um, looking you know observing and participating in the litigation process um, made me realize that that wasn't for me I didn't actually um, I think it's very valid it's it's vital of course in the legal system to have that process but it I realized that it didn't have something that I now realise I was searching for, which was something that just felt more productive and engaging and beneficial for uh, for everyone involved. You know, it's a vital part of the process, but, you know, I was more yep. interested in actually things that could be beneficial to um, people in the world um, and companies before getting to that point. So it was really, yeah. I guess my learning from that is you have to try, but actually you have to understand, okay, if this doesn't feel right, what does feel right? Because it is very much a, 
a phase in your career where you're, you know, as I said, you're learning about yourself and the world. Yeah. So then going overseas, of course I did the, the travel that a lot of people do, took, took a few months off for that, which was um, one of the last times I've had a sort of a, a major break with you know, months and months of, of time, which of course was, was wonderful. I think um, studying overseas, well, also at that stage in terms of still discovering myself, that was really, it was obviously really great from an intellectual and career building point of view. At that point, then I was very interested in intellectual property law and I specialized in that in my master's. So that was, you know, just great from just a knowledge, (laughs) knowledge building, knowledge absorption point of view seeing obviously actually living in a different country will always enrich you no matter no matter where you choose or what what you're doing so that's just that's that's just a great aspect of of life i suppose understanding different cultures you know being in the in the thick of things in new york of course you'd you'd, uh, always look back on with great fondness um still don't dine dine out on it (laughs) and many years later yeah but also, I did realise at that point that certainly the academic life wasn't going to be for me either. So I suppose if you think about it, it's almost like a process of exploration and, and elimination. Well, then you had a couple of years at Allen's after that. Again, so in total of you know, three years at law firms. What, what are the key takeaways from that part of your career? What, is it that, what are the learnings? And anything you do differently now, if you had... You know, if you would speak to your younger self. That's a great question. In terms of those years, and I, and I suppose I had a, another year um, earlier in my career as well, so what, what would that be, yeah. about four, four years in law firms? Great technical learnings, great learnings about how to, of course, you know, communicate well with clients, you know, all the, all the things that you'd expect from early years in a law firm, um, you know, structured thinking, how to, how to think about technically proficient but helpful way, yep. all those things that, you know, you, you learn in, in great yep. firms. I don't think I'd do anything too differently about, about that phase. I know now people have a lot more options. Back then, it, you know, it wasn't, I suppose that's what you did back then. You, you know, you did your four to five years that was that that was the that was the training wasn't it? that was the traditional path and, and then of course lonely planet so you had lonely planet for 10 years tell me a little bit about that part of your and journey and again what stands out for you now um, from that part of your career so i uh, was at a point in my career um, at the, at a law firm where i could feel that there wasn't quite a fit for me um, and I couldn't put my finger on at that point in my life about what it was but there wasn't quite that complete fit. One of the partners that I used to work with at Allen's many years later, nearly 10 years later, invited me to a, um, a lunch regarding innovation. He said, I thought of you about this lunch because you were always you were always innovating and, and questioning the status quo. And I had no idea that that's how I was coming across at Allen's. I just thought I Isn't was. Isn't that interesting? Um, and I said, really? I can't remember doing that at all. And he said, oh, no, you were always <laughs> um, questioning the status quo. So I think there was something about, you know, my, what I wanted to achieve and a law firm that wasn't quite the, wasn't quite the right fit. And at that point, having sort of come through, you know, uh, I suppose a relatively traditional legal path, 
I didn't quite know what would be next. I didn't quite know what was going to feel right. And the Lonely Planet opportunity came up. And it was, a, it was a, such a win-win fit because it was a company that ideally wanted something with overseas training and understanding about either the US or UK legal system and business environment and had you know, all those elements of uh, intellectual property as well. And the, the, the thing that most stood out for me at the beginning, once I made the switch, which was actually a, felt like a very difficult decision, this was around the late 2000s, and at that stage in Australia, of course, it was an in-house profession, but I really don't think it was as well-known or uh, understood or as well-traveled a path as it is now. So it was actually yeah. felt like quite a difficult decision. It was definitely yep. one where so many people, both professionally and personally, were saying, oh my goodness, uh, well, don't, uh, don't you want to be a partner in a law firm? <laughs> and I was saying, well, no, actually, I don't think I do. I don't think that's quite the right fit for me. So that, um, that was quite, uh, in the context at the time, it was quite a brave decision. But one of the things that stood out within, you know, only a couple of weeks of starting at Lonely Planet was this wave of relief and contentment and um, that went through me as I felt that, okay, this is what I want to be doing. Um, uh, you know, these are my people. This is the type of um, professional work I want to be doing. It's the type of culture and environment that um, seems to work for me. So that that was something I'll never never forget actually from the very early days and so I've personally never looked back in terms of the in-house environment and the things that really stand out for me are of course the the um, the breadth of what you do in-house so you know I became really passionate about bridging the gap between areas that mystify people the the, the law does mystify and, and um, intimidate people and and businesses and actually making it accessible and actually helping and enabling businesses in that context and, and bridging the gap which is something that i'm you know really really passionate about so the, the gap you're talking about is one um if you like the, the 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 knowledge gap is you're talking about within a corporation and making sure that it was accessible within that corporation so they you know understood the legal function what the, the value can deliver is that the gap that that, that you have in mind there not the legal function from an internal perspective, although that's very um, relevant as well. But actually, what what do we what are we talking about when we're talking about the law? Like, the, actually, it's the knowledge gap of what what are these laws? What how are they relevant to us as a company? How can we move forward? How can we respect them? How can we navigate our way through? I'm I'm thinking about that gap, and also the the gap that can exist for the customers of the companies. The legal profession is often impenetrable and experienced as impenetrable to people in the world including the customers of the of the companies we work for and um, i'm passionate about bridging that gap um, for for customers and users as well sometimes we forget as a business and sometimes the legal team forgets that we only exist because we have customers that's the only reason we are here so the whole organisation, legal department, everything just exists and needs to, um, uh, needs to work together to deliver something to ensure our customers are delighted and they're coming back again. And certainly the legal function doesn't stand apart from that. In the past, I think you, 
I think it might have felt like, certainly to some parts of the business, that it had stood apart and it, and it wasn't, um, perhaps wasn't serving the customer, which is ultimately what we're doing, even though it might be internal to the business with the ultimate aim of serving the customer. So I love that description. And I think the other things that, um, you know, so many things stand out from, a, you know, a long period at one company, 10, ten years, um, and a lot of people stayed at Lonely Planet for a long time, and that was because of everyone's um, real passion for the vision, mission and purpose of Lonely Planet. And that's what I discovered for myself, that I really wanted to be aligned um, in terms of my values and sense of purpose with that of whichever company I worked for. And I've gone on to do that at the other places I've worked. I was never interested in necessarily only working for the top end of town or, you know, um, it wasn't necessarily about things like status or remuneration or working for a large listed company. It was definitely what sort of organisation can I actually um, feel a sense of alignment with in terms of both its culture because culture is so important you know you work with people spend so much of your time at work and working with people but also feeling aligned to the purpose of the company as well so that's something that really stood out for me in those days and has continued ever since vision mission purpose everybody understands it everybody's aligned with it that's why they're working at the organization it is like for me it's like it's like rocket fuel for the success of any company so i know you've had of course time at envato for five years and then as we said zero for the last six just a couple of highlights from envato then i'm going to do a bit of a deeper dive um, at your time at zero envato is an amazing company um, founded by amazing amazing people um really uh, what i you know some highlights from from that was um uh being uh starting off being employee number 33 in a high growth company but a company that actually understood that it, it actually needed um, an experienced general counsel because of the complexity of what was going yep. on for it in the world. So um, Envato doesn't have a consumer brand, but it's actually a very significant global tech company um, running double-sided market, digital marketplaces and, and some other, and other businesses. So it was amazing actually working with and for Collis and Cyan and uh, Vahid and, uh, and uh, other people in, in, that, in that family who were, uh, Collis especially was a, um, I'd say a digital native and actually working in a high growth tech company. Um, Lonely Planet was a global company, so was Envato, but at a much earlier stage in its development and that, that constant growth. So it was a really exciting time. By the time you'd left, what roughly what was the employee count? You were number 33 by the time you'd left um, five years later, roughly, where, where was Oh, that is at? a good question. I'm going to say, no one quote me on this, but I'm going to say about 150, um, plus a global network of contributors and, you know, global workers and so on, which which, which added, added to yeah. that number. Um, and that's not a large number in terms of number of employees, but actually it's the significance of the... Um, the, the websites, the traffic that the websites um, had and the complexity of the marketplaces and all the um, legal and commercial and business um, um, 
issues and challenges and opportunities around them, which was actually incredible. High growth, how do you actually navigate a path for a high growth company on a global basis? You know, with, with companies like this that are born global, the, um, the websites, the marketplaces, the e-commerce engines, whatever you're talking about, are operating on a global scale. So how, what, what legal um, and other business and uh, associated issues does that involve and how do you navigate them, which was a real, real highlight and challenge at the time. What's the advice you would give to people in a similar position? So they've taken the GC position, it's a high mm. growth company. Um, it's probably um, an early stage of building out, let's say, the legal team or the legal function. What are the top of mind things you'd be saying to GCs finding themselves in a similar position? So much, but um, enable, <laughs> enable, <laughs> enable. <laughs> like, um, I know yep. that's, you know, it's sort of a, a, a catch cry, but I think that... Um, I think that in order to enable, we have to, as in-house professionals and as lawyers, let go a little bit of a few things. Um, we have to let go of eliminating all risk because that you, you can't do that in life. Yep. So the number one thing we can do is understand that risk and reward is on a continuum. Um, and so to get some more reward, it might involve more risk. And so understanding what the options are not being afraid to put forward your recommendation on the options rather than just sort of advising from afar. Your legal view. But also understanding yeah. that um, depending on the type of um, activity, product or service that the company is providing, things can be unwound. So, you know, especially in the, in the digital space, you can experiment and, you know, you can have some scenario plan planning for what might go wrong, but how we could respond in the future rather than trying to get it right from the start or eliminate all risk from the start. So I think that's really important. Um, if you want to work for a high growth and innovative and dynamic company, um, do that with your eyes open because if, you, if actually your personality type is uh, risk averse and cautious and prudent, then just be careful what you're going in. You're going to have a hard time. <laughs> You're going to have a hard time. Yeah. And so it's a real art to, to um, build that muscle so that you're still providing great legal advice. You're helping manage risk. You're helping mitigate, but you're actually enabling at the same time. And that involves, involves letting go of some of the things that you might have been primary drivers if, um, you know, if, for example, you had time in a law firm. Um, on that front, I think it's really important if you're going to be the general counsel for a high growth company that you think about how you manage the external advice that might, that might be inevitable because the external advice can often be from the, well, it is from the outside, can often be aimed at risk elimination rather than providing um, yeah. options like scenarios. Well, moving from Actually, reframing risk and compliance questions is really important, not from this is risky, therefore don't do it, to what exactly is the risk? What's the regulator's um, uh, approach? Um, what, what are other companies doing? Often you're in a grey area in a high growth company. Yeah. And so because you're doing new things and when you're in a grey area, it's not the right thing to just provide the safest interpretation um, of the grayness of what the you know how your activity fits with the, the yep. legal frameworks that's not the best thing it might the safest thing is not necessarily the best thing and so you have to reframe how you structure 
that advice from external advisors and actually who they are and do they understand you as a company as well. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting because some of the examples that we've had um, uh, on the podcast before is um, how sometimes infuriating it can be to receive an advice which identifies all of the risks, um, doesn't weight them, and then just says, you decide. Mm. Here are the risks, you mm. decide, and which can be very unhelpful. And um, certainly the job of the in-house team to be able to... Because the feedback often is the general counsel gets to a point where they are the dispenser of common yeah. sense. <laughs> okay. So sure, that everything's a risk. What often the CEO wants to know is, uh, Chairman, what yeah. would you do? Tell me what you would do and why. A- and the way in which you are able to answer that in the context of the legal advice you received and the risk, that's what they really want to know. I remember a moment um, earlier in my career where one of my um, senior executive colleagues just looked at me and said, Chairman, you've provided all these great options. I know you know which is the right one can you please just tell me <laughs> yeah, tell <laughs> or provide your you know what, yeah. what he was saying yeah. was yeah tell me what tell, you want. what he was saying was provide your opinion and i think that's actually that's actually something that's a little bit hard to balance in the in-house legal function because i absolutely agree we have to provide opinions we we can't just provide we can't just provide options however we have to find the way to do that so that the ownership still remains with the person who owns business outcome. And that can be quite a tricky balance because I think if you go in too far, the business ends up being trained to think that legal is making this decision as opposed to providing real, really great opinions um, which would empower them to make a final decision. But I'd also say to sort of general counsels in a, in a high growth or a scale up or any type of innovative environment, which is learn from the environment around you. So as an example, um, towards the end of the time of my time at Lonely Planet, we had an amazing, we had amazing colleagues um, in the tech function in the business that were advocating for agile, agile ways of working um, as, as in true software agile product um, delivery yep. and offered to teach that. Um, to anyone in the company who was interested and actually I I personally I learned a lot from that situation because I thought well I don't see how this is going to change things Um, and it was other people in my team who said no we'd like to learn and we'd like to give this a go so I said okay let's give it let's give it a go and it was amazing it actually changed it changed my relationship to work and life in a quite a fundamental um, quite a fundamental way to learn from the software world of, of agile fast forward you know nearly 10 years I was I was giving a um, a talk on this at a legal in tech conference um, in Melbourne where there were representatives from overseas from the US from a major tech company who came up to me and said wow it's amazing what you've you know what it's amazing what you've demonstrated in terms of a legal team's ability to adopt these agile processes in a service function. I looked at him and said, hold on, you work at insert major American tech company here. You must have, you must have agile coaches, you know, hanging from the rafters there. And I'm surprised to hear that, that your large um, uh, legal function in this major company doesn't do agile. And he just looked at me and said, no, we, we, (laughs) we don't do agile. Um, So I'm not saying everyone has to do agile. What I'm saying is 
learn from your colleagues um, and their innovations and yeah. their innovation mindset. And there's so much that we can do to pick up and not be not feel constrained like as a profession, like we can't change or we have to do things in a way that was done, you know, 20, 50 or 100 years ago. So that's that's something I'd really recommend to GCs in the same position. What do you think the challenges are for the legal profession? Mm. Um, and what do you think the future looks like? Give me your thoughts around challenges and a bit of vision on what you think the, the, the future looks like. Well, I'll talk more about the part of the legal profession that I understand much better, because I don't profess yep. to sort of speak for the rest of the profession but in terms of in-house I suppose this won't be new to you and your listeners but I think the great challenges are you know what agile people call the infinite backlog of work so you know just the sheer challenge of how much there is to to that could possibly be done that it never that it never ever ever stops and you know there's just you know a huge you know breadth of things to of work um, so I think that challenge has always existed and is only accelerating as um, as the world accelerates so I think it's a real yep. challenge of how yep. do you best spend your time focus your precious time and resources and make the best um, make the choices that result in the best fulfillment for you as individuals as professionals as a team but are the best thing for the company you're a part of as well so i think that's a that's an eternal and universal challenge for the for the in-house team in terms of technology in the future of course you know i (laughs) think i love technology as an enabler i think i think one of the challenges um certainly in the australian or the australian and the new zealand in-house profession unlike other parts of the world there are a much larger number of much smaller in-house teams, you know, operating on the smell of an oily rag. Um, certainly, I've, I've worked in those teams, and even in the early days of zero, that you know, that was um, you know, t- tiny teams. Apparently, the average in Australia, I've been told, of the size of in-house teams is only about maybe three, three or four people in many, yeah. many, many companies. So, I think the challenge that people face is feeling rightly that the that technological innovation is beyond their reach or that innovation is beyond their reach because it involves technology that they might not have the resources for. So what I would say on that front is that so much innovation starts um, in your head and with your mindset and could involve um, things that you could do with your current tools. So um, thinking about innovation and change in that way. So for example, I'm deeply passionate about making legal communications to the world far more accessible. So I call it human language. And we do that in, you know, we've done that in the terms and conditions at Envato, at Zero. People read them and they say, oh, wow, and other legal teams contact us. I can, I can actually read this. I understand okay. this. <laughs> Is that what you it's, get? <laughs> it's, it's beyond plain English, though, because you can understand plain English, but it's still not deeply understood or yep. accessible yep. it's actually completely yep. changing your communication style to write um, what the user wants to hear first and in a language and in a sentence structure that feels much more conversational to them so that's an example yep. of change yep. which doesn't actually involve technology it involves mindset and i think that's really important when it comes to technology i think that um, 
there are things that, that are within our reach, especially now in the world of SaaS. You know, you know, five, ten years ago, technology was beyond the reach of most in-house teams because it needed the resources of the in-house IT function to um, to install and maintain software. So now you can actually, there are more tools out there. Um, so I think finding the time to do that is is crucial and finding the ways to adopt technology for your delivery of legal services that works for you and your team and your resources is is within the reach of people if you can you know um, adopt the mindset to try and put that first and create the space to explore what's possible there yeah. um, uh, chairman you I think your career to date uh, if we talk, if we kick it off in, I think when was it, um, '97, um, with Kirkland Ellis. So, um, and you're, you told me just before we started that you're finishing up with Zero Two to take a That's break. Right. Um, so tell me about, tell me a little bit about that. I'm really interested in what are you thinking. Firstly, taking a break and having the luxury to take, which is fantastic. What are you going to do during that break? What are you going to think about, if anything, um, when it comes to what might be next uh, for Channel Yeah, that's right. So I've been at Zero for nearly six years and it's been like this wild rocket ship ride and it's been absolutely yep. incredible. So, you know, five, six-fold growth in the legal team, in the in the budgets. Um, we've just scaled, honestly, like you cannot even describe. So it's been an absolutely incredible journey it is a luxury and it's a privilege so i'm really conscious about yeah. that but i am at a point in my career where i can actually take that that time out um, my kids are teenagers now they're young teenagers as you and i were talking about before we started yeah. recording and i just think that in the blink of an eye they'll be leaving school so it's really time to just reset uh, the first thing we're going to do is take a three-week road trip in a four-wheel drive we've hired called Ruby. In oh, fantastic! Are you, as long as you've you've got a video the whole journey, because that will be a family video that you guys will look back at, and and honestly, it'd be so precious. Um, so make sure you take as much video um, as possible national lampoon style. Okay. You want the whole show. <laughs> Do we want all the bad bits as well? <laughs> yep. Yep. That's fantastic. On a, yeah. uh, so I think that will be such a great way to just do something that's completely different in Western Australia, um, in the Australian at both the outback and the coast. It's just amazing country around, around there. Um, so that's going to be, that's going to be wonderful. Um, I'm tossing up doing some other travel as well, but actually I'm going to breathe. The, that word always comes to me when I, um, when I talk about, when people ask me about my break and I just, it's just space to breathe and live life. As someone said to me, not only be a good, uh, more engaged or, you know, live life more fully as, um, you know, myself as a mother, as a wife, um, as a as a family member, but as a friend as well. Like just reconnect with yeah. people, both personally and professionally. All the things you never feel like you have time to do when you know you're holding yeah. onto the rocket ship that's just flying and flying. Um, and taking time. Uh, my husband and I have started uh, swing dancing lessons. Um, 
going to do more things like that. I've, I've threatened for, I think, at least four years that I'd love to learn the ukulele. So I better come through. I better come through on that. I better come through on that yep. um, promise to myself. So all those things which are actually living life, which is a real privilege to be able to do. I will, of course, yeah. be thinking about what's next. But actually, I'm going to try and hold off on that just to live and breathe for first. I, I think that's fantastic advice mm. to yourself. I would do exactly that. I would hold off as much as you can. That will come. You won't need to force right. that at all. But what you do need, I think, especially kind of early on, you need to force some me time. <laughs> some I don't have to think about anything. I, and all the things you talked about, and you're right, it's a, it's a privilege. I've had a bit of an opportunity to do that in the past too. And um, it is probably the most precious time when I think back on yeah. it. Yeah. Um, as precious time I had for myself, children, my wife, the family. Absolutely. It is um, it's really, really special. I'm going to finish off with some of my favourite questions, if I can. Um, advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self? That is such a good question. My, my, I've thought about this one, and my advice would be to my 25-year-old self is understand the difference between self-confidence and self-acceptance um, and self-acceptance requires a journey of awareness and that the two things are different um, self-confidence and self-efficacy are very different to self-acceptance so that's been something that um, I've been um, on a journey on more recently which is very very important in everyone's personal lives in your professional life in your leadership life as well so if I could rewind many years that's the main thing I would say to my younger self Fantastic. Um, anything that's keeping you up at night now? Wow. Right now, right now. Well, I'm actually. You're probably too. You're probably too excited about the break coming up, <laughs> and the me time that you're going to have. I think right now it's actually. Well, I've only. I've, I've got quite a short time left at zero. So right now it's quite different in terms of. Um, I'm a good yeah. sleeper, so not a lot keeps me up at night, but I do have those moments of waking up and going, oh, wow, all right, what are we going to do to <laughs> to wrap up, to you know, really make sure that um, everyone's empowered and, and equipped, which, of course, you know, I've got an amazing team. No one's going to skip a beat, um, but I guess that's the phase we're in at the moment and thinking about organising this Western Australian trip. You know, the thing that's often on, on my mind as a leader is, you know, are my people... Um, fulfilled, growing, developing, are we focused um, in ways that are really great for them but are really great for the company as well. So that's often something that's on my mind as a, as a leader. Yeah. And one last question. The time it takes between waking up and checking your emails, more or less than 30 seconds? Oh, much more than 30 seconds. That one I've got covered. Oh, well done. That one I've got covered. Well done. I do get wrapped up in life and work, but um, no, I think I might be I might be distracted. And I think I suppose we were talking about this earlier. You know, I go to these um, I go to technology when I'm ready. There might be maybe I might get distracted by some Slack notifications that might have come through yeah. on my phone. Um, yeah. But even then, I really try to minimise all that um, and uh, not not have that be the first thing that I do. You know, and I love the way you just described that. I go to technology when I'm ready. Mm. 
I, I, I think there's really something in that. In that. Um, uh, Chaman Sidhu, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. You and I caught up very briefly for about, I think it was a couple of minutes, I think it's almost six That's years right. ago. So um, it's been too long since then, So, but I'm super excited to have spoken to you. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Thanks, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.